0: Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I mentioned on the show uh, several weeks ago that throughout the year, throughout 2023, we plan on putting a focus on uh, some of the outstanding thought leaders in Georgia and beyond, I'm devoting an hour to uh, listening to them talk about uh, the state, Uh, talk about uh, their own professions. In this case, we're going to talk today to uh, Charles Bullock, who is certainly the Dean of Political Science Professors in Georgia. I'm going to introduce him in a much more formal way in just a moment, but joining me to talk uh, with Professor Bullock is my partner on the Friday show, the former political columnist for the AJC, Jim Galloway. How are you, Jim? I'm
1: doing wonderful, looking forward to this conversation, has been looking forward ever since you mentioned it.
0: Yeah, this will be great. Um, So let me let me morph, you know, I think most of you know, you've heard Charles Bullock on our show on any number of occasions, and um, we are very informal on this show, so rarely do I give more uh, complete biographies of our panelists. But today, because we are going to talk to Chuck Bullock uh, for the full hour, I, I'm going to read to you... From his university biography. Charles Bullock is a distinguished university professor, <clears throat> excuse me, of public and international affairs. He holds the Richard B. Russell Professorship of Political Science. He's the Hosiah Miggs Distinguished Teaching Professor at the University of Georgia. Chuck Bullock has authored, co-authored, edited, or co-edited more than 35 books including African-American statewide candidates in the New South, the South and the Transformation of U.S. Politics, and he's uh, just in the last couple of years uh, published the second edition of Redistricting, the Most Political Activity in America. Bullock has published more than 250 articles on Southern politics, legislative politics and elections, and has won numerous teaching awards He served as consultant to the attorneys general in more than a dozen states. Georgia Trend Magazine has twice named Bullock as one of the 100 most influential Georgians. Chuck, I'm so glad you're here. And I want to add to this just a couple of things. Um, I read a quote that you gave, I think, to the Red and Black, which did a profile of you not long ago. Um, And here's one of the things you said to them. When you go into teaching, it's because you have some vision of yourself kind of helping shape the future in some way. And so that's tremendously rewarding. And Chuck Bullock, you've been doing that with students at the University of Georgia since 1968. Welcome to Political Rewind today, Chuck.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much, Bill. <laughs> Always good to be with you um, and with Jim.
0: Uh, I want to mention one other quick thing. We talk about uh, the the many, many articles that you've written over the years. Uh, I was interested in seeing, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, that uh, The Bulwark, uh, which is the conservative, more progressive Republican uh, conservative publication, uh, just published another piece of yours uh, this week, and it's on how— to keep extremists from being elected. We'll get to that a little later. So <laughs> right. the point is, you are still incredibly <laughs> active out there. So Chuck, tell us a little about your upbringing. where did you grow up? Um, what, what first attracted you to politics?
2: Well, I spent most of my youth in Tucker, Georgia. We moved out there when I was ten, or eight, eight years old, I guess 1950, and uh, graduated from Tucker High School. Uh, Before that, we'd lived in Atlanta for a couple of years, and uh, before that had been Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I was born. First political memory, and this is something I ask all my students, I pass out three-by-five cards and get some information on them, always ask, well, what's your first political memory? And mine is, this would have been uh, May of 1946. Um, My grandfather spent his whole career at the small college where I went to as an undergraduate, and because it's in Liberty, Missouri, which is about 15 miles from Independence, I suspect that's why they were able to get President Truman to come and give their graduation address that year. Now, I didn't go to the address, but the uh, babysitter who was with me, my little brother, and a couple of cousins took us down, and we got to watch Truman drive by in an open convertible of some sort and wave. And that's the first political memory that I have. Uh, Because of that, then (laughs) I was— Paying close attention, or as close attention as a six-year-old does to the 1948 presidential election, <laughs> and so I can remember waking up the morning after and asked my parents, "Well, did, did Truman win?" They said, "Yeah, he did, actually." <laughs> so I guess that's where I, my political interest stems from. <laughs> uh,
0: that that's a very funny story. Um, you you, had, I, I think early in your career you had an offer, you could come to Georgia. Uh, you also had an offer at the University of Minnesota, <laughs> if I have this story correct, and. You looked up uh, the weather forecast and the temperature range for uh, 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 the state of Minnesota and very quickly decided you'd rather be at the University of Georgia. Is that a true story?
2: Well, that's pretty much true. Yeah, I was—I um, had been at UGA, and I was working—that was a year I was on leave, and I was working as Bill Stuckey, who represented the 8th District of Georgia. I was working as his legislative assistant. So I was in D.C. so I could call up the Library of Congress and say, the congressman needs to know what's the average high and low for every day in February. They told me I could come out any day in February. They didn't care. And sure enough, within an hour, I have that information on my desk, and I noticed that the highs for each of those days in February began with a minus. And so at that point, I said, this is not a place I would want to spend my life.
0: (laughs) Jim, um, I think it's fascinating that Chuck Bullock marks the beginning of his career, which led him into being considered one of the true experts on Southern politics in 1968, which coincidentally was the year in which uh, Richard Nixon unveiled the Southern strategy that took him to the White House and that forever changed how Republicans dealt with the politics of the South. What an interesting coincidence, Jim.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, 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 uh, uh, you, you mentioned that you were born in 42, and I did some quick math here. Okay, that means you were, you, you were the Tucker High School class of 1960, correct? or right. somewhere That's about exactly there, right. exactly. Okay. 1960. okay, and, and which means that you you were you were an adult, a young adult, but an adult nonetheless during these crucial crucial years between nineteen sixty 1960 and nineteen sixty eight in Georgia. Uh, so, so before we get to, to Nixon and the Southern strategy, what were your observations? What what were you? Uh, how were you being uh, uh, formed by that 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 period?
2: Yeah. Uh... At that time, you know, the Klan was still fairly active in Georgia. I mean, it wasn't yep. an everyday event, but it was around. church I went to was at Stone Mountain, it was Episcopal church, right at the base of the mountain. And I can well remember going to midnight service uh, and coming out from that service and looking up on the mountain and seeing the flaming cross up there from the Klan. Who uh, remember, remember Klan uh, going through Tucker. I last couple of years in high school, I worked at Kofer Brothers, which at that point was more than just a hardware store. They had a whole block-long general store. And seeing the Klan go through Tucker also. Um, the tallest building in Tucker, which is three stories high, still stands there, uh, was a, a Klan headquarter. It had you know, KKK up on the top of it. Uh, my parents were you know, not native Georgians. Uh, And for the time would have been thought of as progressive. And so we were a bit out of step, I guess, with uh, what might have been the general attitude of many Georgians at that point. And Tucker was still very rural at that point, too. It had not become part of Metro Atlanta in the sense of it hadn't really that urbanized. I mean, yet technically, you know, DeKalb County was Mm -hmm. thought a part of Metro Atlanta, but it hadn't reached Tucker back then.
1: Yeah, uh, no it's uh okay so so uh so were you you were attending Georgia uh I'm sorry you went to college where uh at William
2: Jewell College which is just outside of Kansas City. Yeah, this was because okay, right. where my grandfather had spent his career.
1: Okay. All right. Okay, so this is so you would have experienced the Kennedy assassination there.
2: Yes. Yes. But, but much, you. But yeah. you were.
1: But but you were probably in in uh, close to coming to Atlanta, if not all there already when Mar- Martin Luther King were, was assassinated.
2: I was actually in St. Louis. That was my year. I was finishing my dissertation. Yeah, I remember that very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so Ch- so
0: so Chuck, I wanted to mention just the coincidence of the Southern Strategy of '68 and you're coming to UGA. Um, not that I necessarily feel like we should start. As Jim has done, he's gone back a little bit in time. And, and I want to go back in time with you as well. Um, I want to talk about one of the books you wrote and something that I read that struck me about it that I hadn't realized, given that I'm an outsider to the state. Um, you wrote a book about the three governors uh, of Georgia, which is one of one of the most intriguing uh, moments in uh, Georgia history and I'd love for you to explain to our uh, listeners what the three uh, uh, governor crisis and do it as, as simply as possible we only have an hour right. Right. But, right. But, but, but 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 so while I want you to just give us a quick look at what that was about I was also interested in the fact that you in the book I think make the point that when that episode ended it really put an end to the progressive political forces in Georgia. And it's hard for me to think back in Georgia history to imagine progressive political forces, say in the thirties and forties. So talk about all that if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, okay, so along at that time, Georgia did not have two party politics. Everybody was a Democrat, but within the Democratic Party, you were either a Talmage or an anti-Talmage. And the Talmage forces were the more conservative ones. 1942 Gene Talmadge was defeated by Ellis Arnold and Ellis Arnold was very much of a national democrat. I mean he aspired to be Democratic vice presidential nominee. He could only serve one term back then. He was the first one to serve a single four-year term. And so in 46 it was going to be a new open seat election. Lots of black GIs coming back. They had been inspired to become politically active. And so Georgia goes from probably roughly 10,000 registered black voters to over 100,000, probably closer to 150,000 in that primary. Uh, Talmadge manages to win. He loses the popular vote, so something akin to what we've been seeing in presidential elections, but he won the county unit vote. And back in those days, you won counties, not the state as a whole, and counties were worth two, four, or six. And Talmadge was always very strong in the rural area, so he gets the nomination. They're not going to be a Republican on the ballot in November because Republicans didn't exist. Talmage dies before he's inaugurated. The Talmage forces had sensed that Gene might not make it. He was in bad health. So they had done a write-in campaign for his son, Herman Talmage. Didn't get a whole lot of votes, but they did that, relying on an 1824 provision that suggested, in their interpretation anyway, that if Gene died before he was sworn in, the legislature could choose the governor. Now, 46 was also the first year we elected a lieutenant governor. Hadn't had that position. So when Gene dies about three weeks before the inauguration, the lieutenant governor says, well, this passes on to me. Township forces says, not so fast, not so fast. Uh, We think the legislature is going to have a chance to choose from among the top two finishers. And this would be people who got write-in votes. (laughs) We're talking about here. Uh, like we're, uh, we're talking Arnold,
1: this is several several hundred. I mean not we're not talking thousands. We're talking correct?
2: hundreds. We're talking hundreds, right, yeah. <laughs> because not all people bothered to vote in the general election because there was no choices. Uh the governor, Arnold, who had wanted to stay on, got an interpretation from the Attorney General of Georgia which said he could stay on as governor until this got resolved. So those are the three people who are claiming they might be governors. Uh ultimately the legislature does vote on the critical ballot of how they're going to carry this off. The Talmadge forces win by a single vote. It's that close. But they do a audit of those write-in votes. Uh, at first, it looks like Talmadge hasn't made it to the top two. He's number three. But then they say, wait a minute, time out. Down in Telfair <laughs> County, which is where the Talmadges came from, we think there are a lot more write-in votes that didn't get tallied here. Sure enough, they <laughs> dig around and they find these. And so now Talmadge is, is the leading candidate, and the legislature quickly elects him. Uh, the anti-tumult forces go to state court, and after about nine weeks, the state supreme court says the legislature didn't have the authority to do this, and so then uh, M.E. Thompson, the lieutenant governor, becomes the acting governor and serves until the next regularly scheduled election. So he gets about a two-year term until 1948. Uh, and who one, wins one, in 1948? One... Yeah, well, who wins in 48? Well, then 1948 it's a 48? rematch. Right, Talmage versus Emmy uh, Thompson, and Talmage wins, and uh, does six years Jim, as governor, and then, right, right, a couple, a
1: couple, a couple, a couple, a uh, couple, foot, footnotes <laughs> here. Uh, Nineteen forty-six was also uh, the first year that that uh, Georgia was doing without a white primary, a formerly white primary, correct?
2: That's correct. Uh, so, yes. So,
1: so, so there was a big racial element uh, to that that contest. Then the second thing is those Telfair County votes. Gosh, they cast those votes in alphabetical order uh, and, and all had the same handwriting.
2: And, and right? some <laughs> even came back from the dead to do it. Dead one gets, person oh, yeah, came they were back having I mean, been dead six years to vote.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Chuck, it, it is one of the most infamous stories in American political history. Um, I think it's uh, fair to say, right?
2: Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that this was was happening or it could happen in the U.S. You may think, well, this might have happened in some third world country, but no, it's just within living lifetime.
0: So let's go to 1968. You've you've come to University of Georgia uh, to teach. By the way, I think there's a great story uh, about your beginnings there. Again, I, I read this. Uh, it may have been in Red and Black. It may have been in another publication. Um, Here's what you said about your first day. You quote, I walked in and the two secretaries in my office were just typing away. So after a while, I kicked the desk and I said, I'm Professor Bullock. And they said, "Uh-oh, you look so young. We thought you were one of them graduates, and we were just going to ignore you." So that was my first welcome <laughs> to the department as a faculty
2: member. Quite, quite deflating, you know, having just defended my PhD like ten days earlier. And we always thought you were a student, you know, we weren't going to do anything for you. <laughs> right. So, 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 so mm-hmm. what was it? What was it? What, what was when
0: you started at UGA? What was Happening in politics in Georgia at the time, and then of course, as I pointed out nationally, we had the rise of Richard Nixon, developing the Southern strategy, which plays a big role in your expertise, which you developed over the years on Southern politics.
2: Well, right, yeah. And so we had remember '68 was that year with three different candidates. So there was Nixon, there was Humphrey, but then there was also George Wallace. And Wallace from over in neighboring Alabama was very, very popular, particularly in rural Georgia. And he ultimately is the one who wins Georgia that year. And you, you, you had students back then who were active, interested in in each of these three. Uh, one of the things that struck me when I came here uh, from a small liberal arts college I'd gone to was how many very politically active students uh, the UGA undergraduate student body had. Uh, you know, a lot of these came from families that were very politically active. And <laughs> remember kids would come in, and sometimes I'd, I did a lot of advising back in those days, and uh, some of the students would come in, and they had their whole political careers, careers plotted out. And when They were going to go to the General Assembly, then when they'd move on to Congress, and uh, <laughs> 20 years later, they'd already mapped out they were going to become governor at that stage.
0: Um, uh, so talk about what you saw when you watched— Richard Nixon as a candidate begin to develop the Southern strategy. There's been an interesting, um, there's been a lot of revisionist thinking about what Nixon's Southern strategy really was. Uh, for a long time, it was um, it was essentially the story was well, this was a racial strategy. He was pitting white Southerners against black Southerners. He was running in many ways a racist campaign. But the revisionist thinking about that is he really never did talk much about race at all. It was mostly about uh, uh, Vietnam War, uh, drugs, uh, Democrats being out of control. And, of course, he had the 1968 Democratic Convention as proof that the Democrats were a radicalized party. So give us your thoughts on the Southern strategy and how it changed politics in Georgia and beyond in the South.
2: Well, a really big thing in in Georgia at the time, at least with regard to racial politics, would have been school desegregation. Yeah, um, Brown versus the board had been decided in 54, but there were at least 80 school districts in Georgia that had not even begun to desegregate here in the late 1960s. the Johnson administration had been pushing for that, uh, and in 1965, I believe it was, No, excuse me, 64 legislation had been passed which allowed the federal government to cut off state federal aid to education in a a district that didn't desegregate. Um, And so there was support for Nixon and his offer that if he were elected, he would slow down this pressure to desegregate the schools in in the South – and then also his promise that he would appoint conservative judges uh, if he were elected. So that sounds kind of familiar today, also. Um, so those were some of the, the the elements which were supportive of Richard Nixon there in that that 1968 election. It wasn't good enough for him to carry the state, but it was significant. Now with regard to Vietnam, um, you know, Georgia certainly UGA was not the kind of hotbed of opposition to to uh, the war that, say, Washington University, where I was doing my graduate work, had been. Now, this didn't happen while I was still at Wash U, but later the Rossi building was burned down there. So the um, student body generally in Georgia was still supportive uh, of the U.S. efforts in in South Vietnam, which I'd so say, not true in, in lots of northern schools.
1: Yeah, as as I recall, as I recalled uh, the first the first Vietnam uh, protests I can remember in Athens were maybe about nineteen seventy two, or so. So it was something uh, they, like they, that. They, yeah, they, they 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 were they were very much latecomers um, to 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 that particular movement. <clears throat> okay, uh, but on 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 Nixon, I mean, he did he did offer something to Republicans on a on a federal level but but Georgia was very very reluctant to walk into the Republican camp on a state level. Uh I mean it was it it it, it took Republicans until 2001 to capture the governorship. Why why was there that that that, that inertia I I I guess you would say.
2: Well, you we remember G, you remember this Jim there used to be people who had refer to themselves as Georgia Democrats, which meant that they would vote Democrat for everything but presidents. They certainly were going to vote Democrat for their member of Congress and their state legislature and, and, and their county commissioners. So uh, you're right. Georgia was the last southern state to elect a Republican governor. But, again, another one of those curious election phenomena in Georgia, in any state other than Georgia, uh, a Republican would have been elected governor in 1966. And this was the Bo Calloway contest. That was the right. first year Republicans had put forward a nominee for governor, at least first time in the 20th century. And Calloway runs a very ineffective campaign. I mean, the people I've talked to just point out you know, one error after another. But even with all of that, he did win a plurality of the popular vote. He is 3,000 some odd votes ahead of Lester Maddox, who was the Democratic nominee. But that Ellis Arnold I mentioned earlier from the 1940s. Uh, was a write-in campaign who got some 40,000 votes. And so uh, by this point, yeah, it was legitimate for the legislature to choose the governor, which it <laughs> did in 1966. And um, most of the legislators, overwhelming number, were still Democrats. And so they voted their party, even if maybe their own constituency had voted for, for Calloway. And so Lester Maddox gets elected, but as say, hey, in any other state, Uh, which didn't have this majority vote requirement for general elections, which, of course, we still have. uh, We would have elected a Republican governor in 1966. And with that, it would have undoubtedly changed the politics of the state because there's so much that a governor can do to build a party.
0: It's pretty interesting, by the way, to point out that right now in our legislature, of course, we've been watching, and apparently the bills have all failed, Chuck, uh, but, but... this, the the uh, runoff elections, uh, uh, which uh, many people would like to eliminate, you've written extensively about runoffs. So um, it, it's interesting that even back then, uh, while we weren't talking about a runoff, ma- you had to have a majority to win an election. Uh, and, and that's what put Arnold in, the, in office that time, right? Right.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Put Maddox in the office that time. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, Maddox. But, Maddox. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And and what they did after that, the legislature, was they filled in this gap that we had adopted uh, runoff elections in 1964, hmm. but it didn't apply to the governorship. And so after this, having the legislature choose the governor, then they rewrote it and said, OK, well, we're we going to bring that also under. So that's why, you know, in 2018, there was a question, did uh Brian Kemp get enough votes to avoid a runoff with Stacey Abrams, which he did.
1: Jim, uh, yeah, if uh, if if I could, if, if just to bring you to the present, I mean, what's the what's the incentive? Do you have to George's uh, changes in elective laws? Just historically, they've always been reactive. You know, they're 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 always fighting the last ballot result. If, if, if you will, what needs to happen in order for, for us to eliminate runoffs in general elections? And, and, and is it something that would, uh, we used to have a system where, uh, you would have runoffs in primaries, but not in the general election. I mean, is that something we would go back to and what, what would be the, what, what would it take for that to happen? You think?
2: Well, I'd would have to pass a uh, law, a law to do that. I think it would, it would simply be it. Um, uh, but you're right, um, we, we tend to not you know, jump, we being the legislature, not to jump quickly into, into change, to uh, you know, do it in a moderate fashion. Um, I think at least there's talk now with the General Assembly about making some changes. Uh, and I think a lot of people still think that it's valuable to have a majority as opposed to a plurality as a basis of our election, so there's some talk now about perhaps moving to the instant runoff, also called ranked choice voting. And we have adopted that for individuals who are casting ballots from abroad. So if you're stationed right now in Germany or Korea and you got a an absentee ballot, you would get one which allowed you to indicate your choices for first, second, third in a, in a contest.
0: We should point out, I've got to get to a break, but we should point out that at this stage of the session, The bills that would eliminate runoffs or go to go to an instant runoff, whatever, have not passed. But there's enough still alive in terms of election measures that any one of those could pop up again as an amendment, I would guess, to an existing bill that's still alive. Right, Chuck?
2: Yeah, what's, what's called is, a, called is a, it's, it's a vehicle. And I've often talked to lobbyists and say it's not so much that you have a bill, but that you have a vehicle, something you could attach your idea to, <laughs> perhaps late at night on the night of sine die, and it maybe slips through with nobody watching or catching what's happening.
0: All right. Uh, our guest <laughs> is Chuck Bullock, and we're going to talk more yeah. with him after we pause for these messages <clears throat> Jim Galloway and I are talking to Professor Charles Bullock, Distinguished University Professor of Public and International Affairs. By the way, when we talk about being a university professor, uh, that's an honor that very few professors at UGA attain. He's also the Richard B. Russell Professor of Political Science at UGA. Chuck, a couple of things I want to say as we go forward. Number one, I just got an email from someone, and I want to read it to you. Uh, okay. Bill? I'm enjoying listening to Dr. Bullock, experiencing many memories. I was in his Poli Sci 101, 102 class in the fall of 1969. He was a great teacher and influenced me to follow my interests in civics and government, which I went on to teach for 30 plus years. I'm sure he positively influenced many careers and not all in politics. But, Chuck. I also looked you up on Rate My Professor, and one of the most constant <laughs> you've you got you got a lot of great. There are a lot of people who love taking a class, but almost every one of them said he is really tough.
1: If you don't want tough quizzes, don't take Dr. Bullock's class. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me let me jump in here. Let me jump in, let me jump in here. Okay, Chuck, I want some name dropping. Who's yeah. been through your class? Who's, <clears throat> what names have been through your class that we would recognize?
2: Well, let's see. Barry Fleming uh, would be a current one. David Schaefer. State um, rep out of
1: August. Yeah, Augusta,
2: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the only person I've had who gone on to Congress was Pat Swindle. There. We won't hold that against you too okay. much, Chuck. <laughs> um <laughs> But for example, David Dove, who is the governor's counsel right now, is, uh, took several classes with me, and his predecessor, uh, who is Butch Miller's son, Carrie Miller, was also one of my students. Um, I've taught lots and lots of lobbyists, far more lobbyists than state legislators. Uh, but Stephanie Benfield, uh, Stephanie Stucky Benfield, taught her. Um, so, you know, there, there there've been a slew of them.
0: <laughs> it it is yeah, always an it it's yeah. always people always say they feel it's an honor to say I took one of Chuck Bullock's political <laughs> science classes. Chuck, I know we're jumping a lot around in time and I I hope that's okay for our listeners, but that's just the way the show's unfolding. <laughs> I want to go back in time again because when we go to like 1970 you watched the jimmy carter governor's race unfold uh that extraordinary race in which he shifted dramatically from a uh, a very conservative run in right. which he uh talked like a segregationist to being the guy who in his inaugural speech said it's time to put an end to segregation to to discrimination um and then, of course you watched as he mounted his campaign for president so talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you as a professor of political science to watch that rise of Jimmy Carter.
2: Yeah, Carter first came to my attention, I expect most people's attention, when he ran actually in 66, and he came close to making it into the runoff that year. He was in third place behind uh, Maddox and, um, and, and Arnold. So for the next four years, he's continues to run. And so when I first got here in the fall of 68, students would come and tell me they would spent the weekend down in Plains. Uh oh, what, why, why is that? And they said, well, Jimmy Carter invited us down there. So he was building towards this gubernatorial race that he makes in 1970 by inviting students, student leaders to come down and, uh, you know, they would sit up late at night and talk politics and go to church on Sunday morning. And the students were very much impressed by him. So then when he runs in 1970, he has this cadre of very active, very inspired young people scattered across the state who would work on his behalf. But you're right. In 1970, he runs in that primary against Carl Sanders, who was a very progressive governor who had served from 1963 to 67, was trying to make a comeback. But Carter runs as the Wallace candidate, and uh, candidates in Georgia at that point always were looking westward to see what george wallace might do what his influence might be Uh, and so he runs as the wallace candidate he promises that unlike carl sanders who would not have anything to do with wallace carter says if i'm governor uh, george wallace will be welcome to come to georgia at any point we'll put him up in the governor's mansion be glad to have him talk to the state legislature so it then is indeed uh, stunning, I think, both to the Carter supporters but Carter opponents also, when in his inaugural address, he does say, as you said, Bill, uh, you know, time for, for race being a major issue in Georgia politics is over. We need to be a much more inclusive society. And everyone is saying, is this the same guy who just got elected running as a Wallace candidate? Because that was certainly not George Wallace's perspective. So it was a huge disconnect between the candidacy and then his governing because as governor you know he begins appointing more women and more uh blacks to positions than uh, any of his predecessors ever had
0: um you know it, it's jim we know from that inaugural speech that there were many who turned around and walked out of the crowd <laughs> when they heard uh, uh carter supporters of carters uh they were so dismayed by uh, by that but 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 then I think Jim, let's take it up to Carter making this what at the time was seemed to be a crazy decision for this unknown Southern governor, at least nationally, to decide he was going to mount a campaign for president.
1: Yeah yeah, I mean I mean we've had we we'd we'd had uh, Southern governors uh, kind of dream of being uh, running for president before. You you mentioned Ellis Arnold in in the forties, uh, uh, Richard Russell. Was kind of a, a a a dark horse in the in the in the 1952 uh, uh, presidential drama uh, uh, in, the, in the convention there, uh, which I think before the, we went on air you, you noted that that was the uh, the uh, the kind of the the first uh, uh, the, I'm sorry the last multi multi uh, ballot uh, candidate selection process that the Democrats went through, but what was the how had the terrain shifted? That, that, allowed, that allowed Carter to do what he did.
2: Yeah, a major change. And this came out of the, as a result of the 1968 riots at the Democratic National Convention. And so the Democrats changed their rules so that going forward, you had to, if you're going to go to the National Convention, you had to be chosen either in a primary or a caucus. So that's the same rules we have today. And Carter was able to exploit that. And so, you know, he spends a lot of time in Iowa, which then is now was the first state to to hold a caucus. And the selection process for presidential nominees or candidates or delegates in 1972 was uh, much more spread out than it is now. So it allowed Carter to build momentum so he didn't have to compete in a large number of states simultaneously. So he could, you know, go in and uh, do well in one state and that would then help him as he moved to the next state. It also helped him that uh, he was the most moderate of the candidates running that year. And so the more liberal wing of the party was splitting its uh, support among multiple candidates. So that also helped him then win with with pluralities in a number of these states. So those changes in the rules, which he understood, which a lot of the kind of the portion of DC uh, candidates had not fully (laughs) integrated into their thought process.
0: Um, what was your reaction, uh, Chuck? Uh, p- people greeted Carter's uh, announcement that he was going to run for president uh, with great skepticism. My recollection, I wasn't here, but I think the AJC, in fact, ran a very skeptical and kind of uh, sarcastic headline about the fact that Carter wanted to seek the presidency. What was your personal observation as you watched that unfold?
2: Carter could not have succeeded himself as governor. We were limited governors to one term then, but had that been an option for him, I don't think he would have would have won. He'd had a very rough time uh, during the last two years of his governorship. Uh, his leading opponent, Lester Maddox, who had preceded him as governor, also hoped to succeed him as governor. And in between time, Lester was the lieutenant governor. And so Carter had very little influence with the state senate, which was, again, assuming That Lester was going to be the next governor, and so the senators were all queuing up beside him. So Carter, after his four years as, as governor, was not terribly popular here in Georgia. Now, once he announced and began to show some success in this gubernatorial bid in 76, Georgians got behind him in a big way. And you had the peanut brigade, which was going around the country doing the door knocking and saying, you know, up in the snows of New Hampshire, yeah, I'm from America's Georgia or somewhere, and yeah, this is awfully cold up here, but it's important that uh, my man Jimmy Carter get get your vote.
0: But were you incredulous when he first said he was going
2: to run? Oh, yeah, right, right, you know, because (laughs) back back in those days, you had lots of favorite sons who would, uh, you know, show up and, you know, Yeah, at the National Convention and get a a mention and maybe a few delegate votes and fade away. And so I think that was probably the way I and most others looked at it. It It's Yeah, he's trying to get a little publicity here, but this is not going to go anyplace.
1: Yeah, uh, Chuck, if you can uh, uh, talk a little bit about the one thing I see uh, that, that one of the big lasting legacies of of Jimmy Carter uh, on, on the state level was uh, yeah he 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 did uh, uh, reorganize state government and and right. create a, uh, a number of efficiencies there, but he also brought African Americans to the table, as far as, as as in in terms of of statewide politics, which had not happened and. I, 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 that that went a long way to to kind of preserving democratic rule in Georgia, but I uh, but I would assume that it also had a, a real impact in, in, in the 76th presidential campaign.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, black support was absolutely essential to him in that seventy six campaign, uh, and I, I forget exactly what what caused this, but there was a statement that he made. Um, that was interpreted uh, as perhaps being um, insensitive to blacks. This is of the, Yeah, the right, ethnic purity Okay, statement. yeah, something about that, right? That's that's the one, yeah. And so immediately he was being written off. You know, gee, he's, you know, he's a southerner. He's he's made this uh, misstatement, and, and you know, his true colors have come out. And the. Uh, Georgia black leadership, and I think Andy Young among these, came to his rescue and said, no, we know Jimmy Carter. We know what's in his heart. Uh, uh, we saw how he performed as governor, and therefore, you know, this may have been an, in, an indelicate statement, but it does not indicate that he is a racist. And so, you know, once he got that support from uh, Atlanta area black uh, like community, then that that died away. Uh,
0: I've, I've got to get to the final break of the show. and uh, when we come back, I want to bring us up to date a bit in Georgia politics with our special guest today, <laughs> Professor Charles Bullock. We'll be right back. Chuck Bullock, uh, for a century or more, Democrats had an iron grip on uh, the governor's office and on all of the state constitutional offices. But um, we began to see a breakthrough in, I guess, the 70s, maybe you'll correct me, of Republicans beginning to win in uh, some congressional races. Newt Gingrich in, what, 78, won his uh, Mm -hmm. first term in office. Um, He, to this day, people... Uh, credit him with the divisive politics that we're uh, now dealing with. But, of course, the major breakthrough came in 2002 when Democratic Governor Roy Barnes, shockingly, I think is the way to say it, lost the election to Sonny Perdue. And from that day forward, Republicans have had that same iron grip. Or from a couple years later, 2004 or so, have had an iron grip on those same offices that Democrats had completely controlled for a century. Talk about that, Chuck.
2: Yeah, Democrats did a better job of holding on to power in Georgia probably any of the other southern states. And uh, Jim alluded to this, that uh, you know, Democrats did a very effective job in Georgia in having a biracial coalition so that uh, blacks playing a larger role in, in terms of the electorate uh, for Democrats, but then also they were getting the rewards from this in terms of positions of power and leadership within the General Assembly. And best example of that probably is Calvin Smyrie, who became quite powerful in the General Assembly. So, Democrats were able to do this, um, but then in the early 1990s, uh, the redistricting round then. Department of Justice uh, was pushing Georgia to increase the number of majority black districts. Now, Georgia had already had one. This would have been the fifth district there in Atlanta. And when the state redrew its districts and it picked up an 11th seat, it drew a second majority black district. But DOJ, which at that point could reject any uh, legislation coming out of Georgia, under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, said, no, you need to create a third district. So what that did, third majority black district, so you had for months the – issue was between black and white Democrats, uh, <clears throat> trying to, you know, can you squeeze another district? If you do, what's going to happen to the white Democrats? And so what I've been told is that up until that point, the Democratic Party was able to kind of paper over racial issues, and they could talk about schools or things like this, which didn't have racial overtones. But after this prolonged debate over kind of zero-sum you know. They're going to be more black Democrats or white Democrats. And, of course, Republicans benefited each time you created another majority black district because you bleached the surrounding districts, made them much whiter. So I think that's really the beginning of the downfall of the Democratic Party uh, is this split which uh, shows up within the ranks of of the Democrats. Um, And then the other thing, of course, that's happening is that you're having new people who are moving into Georgia uh, and – much as today, the new people who move into Georgia are not necessarily aligned with the old voters who've been here. Now, 20 years ago, these new voters tended to be much more Republican. Now they tend to be more Democratic. But if we look at those early leaders of the Republican Party, other than, say, maybe Johnny Isaacson, most of them didn't grow up in Georgia. You know, people like Paul Coverdale, Mac Mattingly, they moved to Georgia. And so were are able to ride that tide of new residents, which then... All comes together in that surprising upset of uh, of, of Roy Barnes.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the, Chuck. The the <sighs> other factor there is is technology. Uh, of course, you know we, we, we were we we're very cognizant of of the impact social media has had on politics uh, uh, recently. But you, you, taking back to the the, the say the ninety one redistricting, uh, as, as I recall, I mean computer technology. Was coming online, and it and it, it allowed some very very penetrative uh, uh, data to be generated uh, 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 that allowed districts to be uh, drawn in in ways that benefited politicians that had never been done before. And as I recall, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, Republicans set up an office a few blocks away from the Capitol, uh, hired I mean uh, bought a computer and then would bring in uh, uh, African-American legislators like Cynthia McKinney and such and showed them what could be done if they sided with Republicans in, in, in their fights over redistricting.
2: That's exactly right, yeah. Republicans bought their own equipment, their own uh, technicians, and invited the Black Caucus to come in and make use of those. And so, again, there was that strange bedfellows coalition of— Republicans plus black Democrats, ideologically miles apart, but they had a common goal with each group wanted more legislative seats. Who filled those seats? White Democrats.
0: Chuck, we remember all three of us, the days when a reapportionment session was going on, when you'd go to the office where the maps were being drawn, and they were literally big topographical maps, Mm -hmm. and the districts were very carefully drawn by hand, you, you didn't have the ability in those days to do the quick uh, redrawing of lines that a computer could do, which is what Jim is really referring to when you can micromanage a district to give it the kind of voting population you want. Changed everything, didn't it?
2: Well, it did, yeah, and you could go through you know, innumerable iterations to do that. And so that's when we began to talk about rather than voters choosing their legislators, legislators chose their voters.
0: Yeah, and, and that's one of your real expertise, uh, uh, the, an area of expertise for you. And I'm, uh, uh, we are not, because we don't have as much time as I'd like, I'm f- really happy that we'll be able to call on you as a member of a panel to talk about redistricting <laughs> in shows as we uh, move forward. Um, by the way, I want to go back to the, uh, the to talk about white and black Democrats. I th- think about an example of that, Chuck, 1986, I don't know that many people, unless they've been here a long time, remember that White Fowler, a white Democrat, uh, held the seat in the 5th District, which is a black district, for a very long time. And in 1986, he had to make a deal with black Democrats to surrender that seat and in exchange for that, beget the support of many black leaders in his bid for the U.S. Senate. And of course, John Lewis, after a very bruising uh, fight for that seat, became the congressman in the fifth, and it's been a black seat ever since.
2: Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, when, White um, uh, Fowler won that seat, it was a special election being needed because uh, Andy Young, who was the first African American elected in modern. Times, to Congress from Georgia, had resigned that to become uh, ambassador to the U.N., and in that special election, uh, Weich Fowler beats uh, John Lewis. And then about 10 years later, as you say, when uh, when Fowler runs for the Senate, Lewis manages to beat Julian Bond in a bitter runoff.
0: Okay, we are really running short on time. Jim, allow me, and then you jump in. Bring us up to date, date uh, Chuck. What is going to happen in this split Uh, in the Republican Party, between those Georgia Republicans who still cling to Trumpian politics and the Brian Kemps who have uh, pulled away and moved to uh, establish themselves separate from Donald Trump.
2: Now, what I think is really interesting is we saw this in this last election year, is that when surveyed, most Georgia Republicans still have a great affinity towards towards Donald Trump, but when uh, the state votes, the Republicans who did best comparing, say, their performance in 2022 with 2018 are the Republicans who had the biggest distance between themselves and Trump. And so uh, Brad Raffensperger goes up by about four percentage points. Uh, Brian Kemp goes up by about three percentage points. And the two closest uh, in the election were the two Republicans who were most Closely aligned with Trump, and that would be Herschel Walker and uh, Burt Jones.
1: Uh, Jim, we got yes, time for uh, one more uh, question. Uh, just, just how difficult it is, is it for a political movement to, to move away from a cult like figure like Donald Trump to establish something more lasting? Because I think that's what Republicans are facing in, 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 a, in a very big way.
2: Yeah. Well, what I think it'll take will be some uh, some leadership. And, uh, you know, Jeff Duncan has tried to provide this, although since he is no longer in office, that's going to be somewhat harder. But, uh, you know, if indeed Brian Kemp were to decide to kind of make a clean break, which he hasn't done with uh, with the pres- former president, then that could be quite influential. But you're right. It's not going to come easily. And, uh, Trump is going to, I think, retain a strong core of support in this state and elsewhere. Uh, Maybe not a support of the majority, but he will continue to have his strong base of support so that that will be an an element in any Republican primary. Chuck
0: Bullock, we are just about out of time for today's show. There are so many more topics I would love for Jim and I to be able to talk with you about. And again, I, I feel fortunate that you agree whenever you can to be a panelist on Political Rewind. So we always have the benefit of your knowledge, your historical knowledge, and your expertise on politics. But it's really been a great pleasure to have you uh, with us today. And by the way, uh, tomorrow, you and I are both going to be part of what's called the Southern Studies Symposium down at the Georgia State University College of Law where um, we're going to be part of a group of people looking at the careers of three Georgia political leaders. Who are the three?
2: It's going to be uh, Ernie Vanderman back in the 50s, uh, Carl Sanders, who succeeded him in the early 1960s, and then George Busby, who was our first eight-year governor.
0: So that should be a great deal of fun. It's a program organized annually by an attorney out in Augusta named David Bell. Um, one last quick thing that I want to point out. Um, I want to say um, a special goodbye to Michael Carton, 29-year veteran of WUGA. He is on to bigger things in his life. He's been a great friend to Political Rewind. We've loved working with him. So uh, we wish you well in your next steps, Michael. Jim Galloway, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, I couldn't have asked for somebody better than you to be talking with Charles Bullock. That's it. We're out of time. I hope all of you have a terrific weekend. We're back with a brand new show on Monday. Take care, everybody.